may be seated. Um, I I was listening to the to the news this week, and uh, I guess it was kind of a combination. It was like a perfect storm combination of things that led to such devastation. And one of the things that I thought was interesting was I was actually talking with my wife about it. Was that they were saying that we had such we had a long drought, right? And then after a long drought, we had a really, really wet winter. Or not wet winter. We had a wet uh, spring, and, and, and the rains came and really erased the drought. Remember, we were all celebrating about how much it rained. Well, then what happened was is after the rain, tons of new shrubbery grew. Tons of new things grew. Things started to spring forth. The drought was over, and there was the intense growing. And then it partnered with a hot summer, partnered with kind of a dry last couple of months. And then, and then it just became super fire, uh, just very hazardous for the fire. And so I just, I always find it interesting in my heart how uh, blessings can become cursings and cursings can become blessings and how we don't understand how God moves. And, you know, we celebrate the end of the drought. And then because of the end of the drought, then there's something else that takes place. And you know what I mean? There's just these there's these kind of natural laws that we encounter in this world. Right. So a lot of times we don't it's hard to blame God. We just celebrate these seasons and in these seasons, things things take place. And so um, and so I just had really, really found it interesting, you know, for those of us that maybe wrestle with, well, man, what's going on, God, and why you allowed this happen or whatnot. But and one thing we pray for, and one thing we celebrate, and then the aftermath of that, there's something else. And and so I think there's always we, there's always more to we just never fully understand what's going on. And uh, what we could do is pray, prepare, be in God's word, trust in the Lord. And so I uh, just want to definitely invite you to do that and rest in his sovereignty this morning. We just rest in his sovereignty, like even when things are out of control. And remember, Christ came to make to Christ came to heal you internally. The goal for Christ is to get you in control inside. And then externally, you could be burnt on a stake. But if you are internally okay with Jesus, then you are okay. And so the goal isn't your outward comfort, it's your inward transformation. And if we could rest in that and rest in his sovereignty, I think we would grow as a people beyond surface level Christianity. I don't know you, but I'm, I'm over surface level Christianity. I'm over the bless me, make me feel better at the end of the day. You know, make me uncomfortable if it's going to change me internally. Because I need internal transformation. I don't need a one day thing. And so, um, and so as we grow deep roots in understanding the Lord, let us rest in his sovereignty. And rest in the comfort of the truth that he is doing a work in us. And even though outside of us things may be happening, we question, he's doing a work in us. Amen? Um, And uh, before we go forward, I just want to honor and welcome Pastor Tilly. Good to see you, Pastor Tilly. She's right there. Can you share with you? Yeah, she's right there, Pastor Tilly. Yes. She uh, she doesn't know, but she's she's my uh, she's my keyboardist mentor. So she played she played she's a pastor. She preaches. She teaches. She plays music. She sings, and uh, she is just wonderful. I'm so happy to have you here, and you're a blessing to me. So thank you for coming today. Yes. I mean, come on, we can do a little better than that. Let's, yeah, yeah. Amen. So this morning, we're going to finish our Jonah series. We're going to end the book of Jonah. It's a really short book. It was four chapters, and we spent four weeks in the book of Jonah. But this morning, I'm especially excited because we're going to look at Jonah and Jesus. A kind of an unlikely couple to pair, but nonetheless, you'll see this morning that there are some great things that we can learn about the gospel and great things that we can learn about Jesus through the book of Jonah and the man of Jonah. But before we do that, I kind of want to just take a look back and what we've 
what we've gone through the last couple of weeks, and then we'll enter into this morning's message. So if you remember, for those of you that were here, in week one, we looked at Jonah, the man of God, the prophet of God, the reluctant runner, the one who ran away from the call of God. And we discovered that he was a prophet with a tribal heart. And what I mean by tribal is he was a clicky prophet. He, he didn't want to prophesy. He didn't want to do the will of God if it meant blessing people that were outside of his tribe. And he had a tribal heart. He was a, also what I call a religious runner. And he had a problem with obeying God when God called him to reach a city that he hated. A city that he, would, that he disdained. A city that was his enemy. God called him to bless his enemy and Jonah ran the other way. And that was week one. And week two, we actually looked at that city, the city called Nineveh. And it was also the city that God called great. A city that was great in stature, great in size. It was also a city that was great in influence. But if you remember, God said it was a city that was great with evil. And as we began to look at that city's evil, we began to understand a little bit why Jonah ran. In week one, we were ready to stone Jonah for disobeying God. In week two, we're like, oh, I understand. I probably wouldn't go there, neither, Jonah. And uh, if you remember, uh, at the end of week two, God left us on a cliffhanger. In fact, the story ends with a cliffhanger. The story ends with God questioning Jonah. And God says this to Jonah. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Literally, the story ends right there. We don't even know what Jonah says. I'd like to, I'd like to, um, so the question is, what happened to Jonah? Yeah. What happened to him? We the story just ends with a question, and he's angry at God. You remember that? He's mad at God because God didn't destroy the city. God says, Jonah, should I pity that city? And that's it. But I would like to say this. We may not know historically what happened to Jonah, but we know that the book was written. Yeah, yeah. So I would like to nobody writes a book about how terrible they are. They usually write a book about how awesome they are. I would like to submit to you today that Jonah changed, that Jonah's heart was transformed. And at some point in time, Jonah sat back looking at his life and wrote this book for the honor and glory of who God is. And so it's a really powerful thing. And so finally this morning, we're going to focus on God himself. And again, we did this last week. And I don't know if you guys remember, but we discussed kind of the four big ideas about God for us in the book of Jonah. We talked about God's calling. We talked about God's salvation, his, God's relenting. And we also talked about God's appointing. And so this morning, we're going to talk about specifically Jesus and Jonah. And this is one of my favorite things to do in all of scripture. One of my favorite things to do. Um, and I, before we get into the, the entire, um, before we actually dig into the book, I think I want to open by telling you and talking about the heartbeat of Christianity. I'm wondering if we understand what the heartbeat of Christianity is. And the heartbeat of Christianity is simply this. It's the gospel. The heartbeat of the Christian faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no Christian faith. You see, sometimes as a church and sometimes as church folk, we got any church folk in here? We think that the gospel is something non-Christians need to believe in in order to be saved. And once they believe it, then they advance to like much deeper theological waters. 
We believe sometimes as Christian folk, we've been in church for a while, the gospel are the, is the elementary thing. It's the entry level thing. It's the doorway into Christianity. And when you believe the gospel and you're saved, then you kind of go towards deeper theological waters. But the truth is, a healthy believer never goes beyond the gospel. In fact, J.D. Greer in his book, Gospel Revolution, said this. The gospel isn't the diving board by which we jump into the pool of Christianity, but the gospel is the pool itself. The gospel isn't the diving board by which we jump into Christianity. The gospel is actually the pool itself. You see, the gospel is a story about God sacrificing himself for his enemies. So when we read the book of Jonah, or any book for that matter, we should read the book of Jonah through the lenses of the gospel. Whenever you read a book in the Old Testament and New Testament, we should read the book through the lenses of the gospel. If we're not reading the book through the lenses of the gospel, we're going to miss the lifeline of Christianity. And so what does the lenses of the gospel look like applied to the book of Jonah? Well, there are two things I want to share with you briefly that if we read the book of Jonah through the lenses of the gospel, we would understand and apply to ourselves. Number one, you ready? This is it. We are Nineveh. When you read the book of Jonah through the lenses of the gospel, we are Nineveh. Well, what do I mean by that? We should see ourselves as Nineveh because before we trusted Christ, we were enemies of God, alienated from his people. But it's the gospel that declares to us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God, don't you love that? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died. Do you get that? It was like, then we're friends and then I died for you. Then we got close and he died for you. Then you proved your love to me. Then I died for you. No, while you hated me, I died for you. I showed my greatest expression of love for you while you were showing your greatest expression of hate for me. Are you with me? Before Nineveh ever considered repenting, God was already preparing the prophet Jonah. You see, when we read the book of Jonah through the lenses of the gospel, we realize that we are Nineveh. Number two, when we read the book of Jonah through the lenses of the gospel, we realize that we are Jonah. You see, when you come to know Christ as Christians, we can get a little legalistic and prejudiced sometimes. When you're a Christian and you forget the gospel, you become Jonah. As Christians, you can become legalistic and prejudiced, failing to grasp the mission heart of God because we fail to advance in the gospel. I want you guys to listen to this. When churches and so-called Christians forget the gospel, all they're left with is empty religion. When Christians and churches forget the gospel, all they're left with is empty religion. Unsatisfying, dry Irritating religion. Failing to grasp the gospel means failing to grasp everything. When Christians and the churches forget to grasp the gospel, they're left with empty religion, inward-focused, outward-threatened, whitewashed tombs is what we become. 
we become inward focused, outward threatened, whitewashed tombs. You know what a whitewashed tomb is? It looks clean and nice on the outside, but inside is a bunch of dead man's bones. So this is what I want you guys to know today in Spire Church. If we're going to be a mission-minded church in year two, we've got to be a gospel-centered church. As believers, we never go beyond the gospel. We only grow into the gospel. As believers, we never go beyond the gospel. We only grow into the gospel. We are Nineveh. And we are Jonah. We need the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak through me this morning. May my words decrease and may your word increase. May every hearer in this room only hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to them. Take my words, translate them into every heart in this room according to their situation and their circumstance and where they're at right now. I pray that you would speak and I pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be seen and be glorified in this house this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn away from Jonah just for a minute, and we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 12, 38 through 41. Um, We'll also have it for you ready on the screen, but if you want to follow along, uh, Matthew chapter 12, uh, 38 through 41. Matthew chapter 12, 38 through 41. I'm not sure if I'm gaining weight or we need to get some new, uh, we need to get some new, uh, Stage. New stage, Bill. Yes, Lord. I mean, Mom. (laughs) Mom and Lord intertwine sometimes. Because every time I step, I'm like, oh my gosh. Anyways, Matthew chapter 12, 38 through 41. And scripture reads like this. You ready? Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him. Okay, this is Jesus they're speaking to. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, I'd like to share with you a little context to this story so you can see what's going on before we go forward. Jesus had just cast out a demon from a man who was both deaf and mute. But the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out that demon by the prince of demons. In other words, the religious leaders were saying Jesus was demon-possessed. And while some accused him, there were others that came around Jesus to test him. And they tested him by asking him for a sign from heaven that would validate his claim to be God's Messiah. Now, a lot of us would think, wow, they just saw an exorcist. They literally just seen Jesus expel a demon. Wouldn't that be sign enough? But what they were asking for was a sign that was outside of Jesus. Some sort of external sign from God to validate the Messiah. And so they were saying, Jesus, we don't want you to perform a sign. We want to see some heavenly sign to know that you are the Messiah. Show us an eclipse. 
Now, there are two things, there are two ways Jesus responds to these men that were looking for a sign. He rebukes them and he schools them. And what do I mean by that? He rebukes them and he educates them, okay? So number one, Jesus rebukes them. What do I mean by that? He rebukes them by saying, you evil and adulterous generation. You evil and adulterous generation. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Now, I want you to understand this. Jesus never rebukes genuine people seeking healing. But he knows the motivation of the hearts that are those that are there today. They're not authentically seeking a sign. They're looking for a way to trip him up and kill him. So Jesus calls them evil and adulterous. Now, what does adulterous mean? Does that mean that they're somehow that he knew they were he was reading their mail and they were committing adultery behind the scenes? By calling them adulterous, he's saying to the religious leaders, you become spiritually unfaithful to God. Wow. You are married to God, but you complete you cheat on him all the time. Wow. And he's saying this to the spiritual leaders. You're faithful to God. By calling them evil, he's pointing to their motives. He's saying, You have evil intentions. You don't even want a sign. You want to trip me up and you want some ammunition to kill me. And so he rebukes them. But then he also schools them or he educates them. And he educates them by saying, no sign will be given to you or to this generation except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. So the question that I want to answer this morning is this. How does the prophet Jonah point to the Messiah? How does the prophet Jonah point to Jesus Christ? And I want to break the answer down to this question into three sections. So number one, we're going to talk about Jonah and Jesus. Number two, we're going to talk about Jesus, the greater Jonah. And then finally, we're going to end with the sign of Jonah itself. Amen? Amen. But I want to give you a brief little illustration detour, if you don't mind, before we get into these points. Uh, how many of you in here like putting things together with your hands? Show me. So raise your hand. Nice. Good. I'm going to call all of you. <laughs> That's great because I don't. I'm not good at it. And my poor wife and son suffer for this all the time. I'm not very good at assembling pieces and parts together. I just happen to be one of those guys who doesn't like to read the instructions. I jump ahead and before you know it, my son has a racetrack that's lopsided and incomplete. And he's young enough to still enjoy it and think his dad did something. But in a couple of years, he'll look at me and say, no, that's not going to work. I remember this one time in particular. In fact, I know it still haunts my wife because she brought it up during an argument. And I knew that, I knew it's something that's still, I know it's important to her. Um, uh, but I remember this one time, I was really excited because my, my son got, you know, a truck. And uh, this actually was more like a tricycle type of thing. And, um, and you know, I was really excited. So I got it out. I laid it. And, you know, I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to be the hero. So I, you know, laid the parts out. I actually read through the instructions ahead of time. And, uh, hi, babe. And uh, I thought she was coming to kill me. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I laid the instructions out. I laid the parts out. And I kind of put a game plan together. And um, I realized uh, what, that I didn't have a particular wrench. I know what a wrench is, so I'm kind of okay with that. Uh, but there was, there was a particular wrench that we needed that wasn't put together properly. Um, and so, needless to say, it's not like I went out and bought a wrench. I actually was like, oh, I guess I can't do it. I put it back in, and it, a year and a half later still sits 
and my son's probably outgrown the tricycle. And whoever gave it to us, God bless you. Thank you guys so much. I want to tell you that my son um, really looks at the picture and enjoys it. And I bring the box out, and he actually uses it for a ramp with the cars. So we kind of get some sort. But I want to say that I, I was frustrated in that moment because the tool that I needed to put everything together properly was missing. The tool that I needed to put it all together properly was missing. And I want you to know this is how the Bible works. You can read it for its history. You can read it for its cool stories. You can even read it to learn some morality and principles for your life. But if you're not reading it to find Jesus, you're missing the essential tool needed to make the picture come together properly. If you're not reading the scripture to find the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're reading the Bible amiss. And you will swing and miss in trying to find the point of the Bible because all scripture points to Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, these are the scriptures that testify of me. You search the scripture to look for eternal life because you think that eternal life is in the scripture. But the scripture points towards me. This is how the Bible works. In every page, in every book, Genesis to Revelation, our goal is to find Jesus and to find him anywhere and everywhere. So Jonah and Jesus. Now, this is kind of a head-scratching statement made by the Pharisees. Um, And it's a head-scratching, actually, it's a head-scratching statement. Jesus responds to the Pharisees. And Jesus says, just as Jonah... So will the son of man be. So just as Jonah was, so the son of man will be. Now, it's intriguing to me because I don't understand how Jesus, the son of God, could compare himself to a rebellious runner like Jonah. But nonetheless, there are four interesting similarities that I want to bring out for you this morning. And these four similarities are this. There's a similar region, a similar storm, a similar sacrifice, and a similar tomb. So similar region, similar storm, similar, similar sacrifice, similar tomb. Try saying that four times quickly. So let's talk about a similar region. According to 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, Jonah was known as the prophet from Gath Hefer. He was known as a prophet from a town called Gath Hefer. Now, Gath Hefer was just a short ways west of the Sea of Galilee, only a couple miles from Nazareth. Nazareth is the birthplace of Jesus. Now, it's the Pharisees in the book of John chapter 7, verse 52, who sarcastically make a comment about where Jesus is from. And they say to Jesus, search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. That's lie. That's wrong. Jonah came from Galilee. In fact, he was born about two miles from Jesus' birthplace. So there's a similar region there. And the second, there's a similar storm. I don't know if you realize this, but in Jonah chapter 1, verse 5, and in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, both stories describe a terrible storm at sea. Remember that? In which both Jonah and Jesus are found what? Asleep. In the boat. And what makes it even more similar is that Jonah and Jesus are awakened by terrified sailors who ultimately fear the Lord once the storm is calmed down. So great similarities there. Not only do you see a similarity in their birthplace or their region. Secondly, you see a similarity in the storm. Third, you see a a similarity in their sacrifice. 
It's very rare that we find something admirable about Jonah in this book. But during the storm, if you remember, Jonah volunteers himself to be thrown over for the sake of the sailors. Do you remember the sailors in the storm and it's chaotic and they're going to die and they're throwing things over and they wake Jonah up and said, pray to your God. And Jonah's like, well, look, I know why we're in this storm because I'm running from my God and my God is the creator of all things. And do you remember Jonah says, throw me over. And so Jonah willfully gets thrown overboard and then the storm calms. The sailors are saved. In fact, scripture tells us that the sailors fear God. I want you to look at this carefully. See this really carefully. Jonah, in his book, during the storm, volunteers himself to be thrown over for the sake of the sailors. Now, in doing this, the judgment of God over Jonah was the what? The storm. When Jonah throws himself over the boat, the judgment of God is satisfied. The storm is calmed. And the sailors are saved. I want you to see this. Jesus is the ultimate willful sacrifice and that he volunteers himself to be crucified for the sake of the world. And in doing this, God's judgment, God's wrath is satisfied and everyone who believes in him is saved. And so you have Jonah volunteering himself to be thrown over. You have Jesus volunteering himself to be crucified. And Jonah, by throwing over, you see the storm calm, the judgment of God satisfied. But Jesus being crucified, you see the storm calm, the judgment of God being satisfied. And you see in Jonah, the sailors are saved. In Jesus, the world who believes is saved. Are you with me? Now, another interesting point is not just a similar sacrifice, but there's also a similar tomb. In Jonah chapter 1, we're told that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. And then in chapter 2, we're told Jonah prays and compares the fish's belly to Sheol, or the grave. We're even told in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, that Jonah is in this grave-like belly for three days and three nights. And at the end of chapter 2, Jonah is miraculously vomited out of the fish and onto dry land. In similar fashion, Jesus was crucified placed in the belly of the earth for three days, and miraculously on the third day was resurrected up on top of dry ground, on top of the ground. Are you with me? But even though Jonah and Jesus have some similarities, there are some beautiful and drastic differences. I want you to see this. The similarities are nice, but the differences glorify Jesus over Jonah. The similarities are nice, but the differences glorifies Jesus over Jonah. You see, Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jesus is the greater prophet. This is really important. Similarities hint at the glory of Jesus. But the differences glorify this glory, make it more known. And the differences actually elevate Jesus to a higher place. So I don't want to compare Jesus and Jonah and say they're the same. Jesus is greater. Now, we're going to go over four, four reasons why Jesus is greater than Jonah. Number one, Jesus is the greater runner. Number two, Jesus is the greater missionary. Number three, Jesus is the greater sacrifice. Number four, Jesus is the greater preacher. Let me explain. Jesus is the greater runner. You see, both Jesus and Jonah run. But while Jonah runs away from his enemies, Jesus runs toward his enemies. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Jesus is the great initiator. We do not initiate anything. He initiates everything. 
We have a fear of rejection, so we don't initiate. He does not have a fear of rejection. In fact, he was rejected, yet he still died. He was abandoned, yet he died. He was beat, he was bruised, he was spat on, yet he still willfully went to the cross. Both ran. One ran away, one ran towards. Secondly, Jesus is a greater missionary. Jonah was just a messenger sent by God to minister great grace and faithfulness to an evil city. But Jesus was more than a messenger. He was the living word of God sent by the Father to minister great and faithfulness, not just to an evil city, but to an evil humanity. Jonah runs away. Jesus runs towards. Jonah finally goes reluctantly. Jesus always goes willfully. Jonah is rebellious to the will of God. Jesus is submitted to the will of God. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Wow. Jesus is the greater missionary because while Jonah goes angrily, Jesus goes joyfully. While Jonah goes on mission because he has to, Jesus went on mission because he wants to. But he's not just the greater missionary. Jesus is also the greater sacrifice. In Jonah chapter 2, Jonah is described, uh, in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah described his time at sea in the belly of the fish in terms that sound like death. He prays out of distress. He cries from what feels like the grave. He feels casted out, placed into a pit, driven away from God's sight. In chapter 2, verse 7, he describes his experience as if his life was fainting away. But Jonah never actually dies. This is because Jonah's mission was to preach, not to die. Jesus is the greater missionary and the greater sacrifice because Jesus' mission was to preach and to die. I thank the Lord that Jesus had more than just a near-death experience. See, Jonah had a near-death experience. Jesus had a death experience. And I thank God that Jesus had more than just a near-death experience. Because my sins and the sins of this world demand death. My sins and the sins of this world demanded my death. Something a near-death experience from a rebellious prophet could have never satisfied. And so we're told in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus is the greater sacrifice, for although Jonah comes close to death because of his own sin, Jesus actually dies because of the sin of others. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now I want to also point out the fact that because Jesus was the greater sacrifice, he experienced a greater resurrection. <laughs> if you recall, Jonah had a resurrection. But that resurrection left him in a pile of vomit with more work to do. Jesus' resurrection... Jesus' resurrection meant that his work was completely finished. And it was done in glory. And he was taken up to heaven at the right-hand side of the Father. You see, Jesus went lower than Jonah, so his ascent went infinitely higher than Jonah. 
Jonah had a near-death experience. Jesus had a death experience. Jonah had a resurrection in vomit with more work to do. Jesus had a resurrection in glory, and the work was finished. It was finished. It was finished. Jesus went lower than Jonah, so his ascent went infinitely higher. Finally, Jesus is a greater preacher, amen? Jesus is a greater preacher, amen? Now, this point most intrigues me because typically we measure the success of a sermon based upon the response of a people. If you're anything like me in the church planter world or any church world, a lot of times as preachers and ministers and teachers, and some of you are preachers, ministers and teachers in here, but all of you are ministers, you actually calculate your success based on the response. Many of you are not evangelizing the gospel of Jesus Christ because somebody rejected it from you. But I want you to know, some water, some plant, only God brings the increase. Your job is not to bring increase. The moment you said Jesus, you were successful in your preaching. A lot of us find ourselves to be a failure because we couldn't bring that person to the Lord. That was not your job. In fact, you become less of a missionary, less of a witness in the workplace, in the school place, if you allow that to fear you, to bring fear. Jesus is the greater preacher, but sometimes we can get so caught up in basing the results on what we see. Sometimes preachers go home feeling insecure because they feel like the crowd didn't amen them enough. They didn't get enough yeses. They didn't get enough hand claps. Not enough people respond. When I told everyone to bow their hands or bow their heads and raise their hands, there was nobody who raised their hand. They must most certainly not have been touched by today's ministry. Are you guys with me? Typically, we measure the success of our sermons based upon the response of the people. But if you look at the story, one preacher came willfully and full of love. The other preacher came reluctantly and full of hatred. Yet it was Nineveh who repented and Jerusalem who rejected. One preacher sits outside of the city, annoyed that it's not destroyed. Another preacher cries outside of the city because he looks over Jerusalem and begins to weep because they're like sheep without a shepherd. One preacher sits outside of the city crying because God will not destroy it. Another preacher sat outside the city crying because he knew God would judge it. When Jonah preached to the people of Nineveh, Nineveh humbly, immediately, and completely repented of their sins. But not so with Jesus' generation. Isn't that interesting? Not so with Jesus' generation. Now I want to go back to Matthew chapter 12. Verse 39. When Jonah preached, the people of Nineveh humbly, immediately, and completely repented. But not so with Jesus' generation. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. I'm going to get a little bit closer today, if you don't mind. And we're going to cruise and be finished really, really soon today. <coughs> Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. Are you with me? You there? Yeah. Okay. Remember, when Jonah preached, Nineveh humbly, immediately and completely repented of their sins. But not so with Jesus' generation. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. 
we're going to end today's message right where we started it. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. So what was this sign Jesus was referring to? You see, Jonah's rescue by God from the belly of the fish was a sign to the people of Nineveh that his message was from God. Can you imagine Jonah coming into the city of Nineveh and saying, look, you guys better repent. I was just in a belly of a fish for three days because of you. Can you imagine coming in kind of looking like a mummy, maybe still smelling like the whale's belly? We eat seafood and our, we, our fingers smell for about a week. Some of you, seafood is part of your diet, so you smell like seafood all the time. We smell what we eat. We do. Can you imagine Jonah being in the belly of a whale? So what was this sign? Well, Jonah is rescued by God from the belly of this great fish. You know, sometimes we think, gosh, Jonah only preached like an eight-word message. You know, he basically says, look, you have 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. So there you go, mic drop, I'm out of here. And he has one of the greatest revival services of all time. I mean, it rivals Billy Graham. And Billy Graham's got to preach. Jonah just says something irritated. Imagine we had that ministry. I'd love to have that ministry too. If I just came in here irritated, said 10 words and left, and all of you were like, yes, Lord, we're doing it. <laughs> the entire Union City just bowed before the Lord. There's 77,000. This was 120,000. And actually, some scholars think 500,000 because it says this 120,000 might have just been men. I'm talking about a huge city. So if they only, if you only said eight words, kind of irritable, how do these people just come to come to the Lord so quickly. Well, I think they might have seen and witnessed this vomit. There might have been a few people that witnessed this vomit. There might have been a few people that said, you know what? Listen to this guy because he just came out of the belly of a fish. In fact, in that region, did you know they worshipped Dagon? Is it Dagon? I believe it's Dagon. And this fish, this was a half fish, half man. What a sign. So Jonah comes out of the belly of a fish. Some of Nineveh probably looks at it and says, oh my gosh, this, rem- this is our God. And then it comes Jonah and says, "Repent, to be judged. Repent. Amazing. What was this sign that Jesus was referring to? Well, Jonah's rescued by God from the belly of a great fish. And this was a sign to the people of Nineveh that this was a message from God. Likewise, Jesus, his death and his resurrection was God's sign to that present day generation that Jesus' life was validated by God. This was the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so Jesus was in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. He was resurrected and for 40 days he showed himself to people in Jerusalem. So when Jesus says, no sign is going to be given to you, but only the sign of the prophet Jonah, you understand what Jesus is saying. Now, there's an interesting twist 
to the end of this story that I purposefully left out just so we can share as we conclude. If you continue in Matthew chapter 12 with me, and we're going to read verses 41 and 42 together, I want you to see this twist, and then we'll finish this morning. Chapter 12, verse 41 through 42 says this. Jesus tells them, and I'm I'm not reading right now, but Jesus tells them, no sign is going to come to you except for the sign of what? The prophet Jonah. Then he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And then Jesus says something interesting. He says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the other end of the earth, I'm sorry, she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus basically tells us that on the day of judgment, there's going to be two guests. Can you imagine that? On the day of judgment, there are going to be two guests. The men of Nineveh and the queen of the south. And on that day, Jesus says, there will be a prideful and arrogant generation standing before God. And they will say to God, this wasn't fair. And on that day, this prideful generation who says this isn't fair, they will say, God, you never made it obvious that Jesus was your king. No sign was given to us. How are we supposed to know that this was your Messiah? We kept asking for a sign. This is not fair. Then in will walk in the queen of the south. You see, she's never heard a parable from Jesus. She never met Jesus. She never had access to any form of scriptures. Are you with me? She never had access to any form of scripture. Yet in her heart, there was a longing to know the living God. You know what she did know? What she did know was that she had heard rumors about a king in a faraway country. Rumors about King Solomon. I don't know if you know the story of King Solomon. He's the wisest man that ever ruled the earth. And the queen of the south heard rumors about this wise man. And how this wise man would rule his people in wisdom and in justice. And her curiosity bubbled up inside of her. And she also heard that not only did this wise man minister over his people in wisdom and justice, but that he was wealthy and that he was blessed. And that she also heard a rumor that he worshipped a God that ruled the universe. Rumor had it that this king had tremendous wisdom by God. That he was given understanding. So based upon that rumor and the desire to seek God, Queen Sheba packed her bags, left her kingdom, and trekked 1,500 miles across the desert to see if these rumors were true. Now, I can only imagine on that day what she will say to that generation. Are you telling me when perfect goodness lived among you, walked in front of you, when one greater than Solomon sat before your eyes that you didn't truly investigate? You had the privilege to walk 
with Jesus and you rejected him. And in that moment, that generation will grow silence. And the queen of the south would have condemned them just by simply being in the judgment room that day. And then in will walk in the men of Nineveh. Now, if you think about it, this generation Jesus is speaking to, I think they would be better off than the men of Nineveh. In fact, if I was a betting man, I'd put it all on the Pharisees and the scribes over Nineveh. Why? The Pharisees and the scribes, they had the temple. They had the law. They had the scriptures. They had the prophets. They were upright and moral men. The Ninevites, on the other hand, were cruel. They were godless. Yet Jesus says it's the men of Nineveh that will stand and condemn this generation on the day of judgment. I want you to hear this. It's not because Nineveh was good. They most certainly were not good. They were very evil. It's not because they were respectable. They were actually detestable. But it was simply because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They didn't know much. In fact, they knew very little. If anything, like I said, you'd expect, you'd expect them to capture Jonah and behead Jonah. Yet in walked Jonah, and he only said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But they responded to him in humility because in their hearts, they knew they were evil. And they had enough sense to believe that there is a real God who judges evil intentions. Now here's something that is puzzling and even scandalous. Godless and evil men that know nothing about God repented when they were told just a little Yet the religious generation, with all of its biblical knowledge, would not repent. Like the queen of the south, the men of Nineveh will not even need to say a word. Just them being there will condemn that generation. I want to finish with this. With far less knowledge than us, they will condemn us because they choose faith. And some of us did not. With far less knowledge and some of us, they will condemn some of us because they chose faith. Some of us did not. Isn't that powerful? So no sign will be given to you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Let's pray.